The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. That's a very wonderful thing to do because it's very difficult when these buildings get locked down, closed down, people can't make use of them. Is this the very first talk here? Yeah, the first opening of the Morphin Town Hall for two years. It's a long time. So I'm going to give a little blessing. Sabarogawinimoto Sabasanta Pawajito Sabawera Matigando Nibuto Chato Wangbawa Sabiti Oviwa Chantu Sabarogo Winasatumate Bawan Wantarayo Suki di gayu gopawa, api wa dan hasi, litsa ni chang, wuta pachalino, chataro, dama watanti, ayu wano, sukang, palang, sadu, sadu. Sadhu. And the reason I did it that way is a traditional Buddhist Theravada blessing, but I gave it some oomph, some energy, because sometimes when people do blessings, whatever they do in their life, sometimes we just do it, we don't give it our fullest energy. Even those of you who got signatures on your books, you see, I always make it a big signature or a funny little drawing like on the bear book. Whatever you do to give it a little bit extra. If you just wanted a signature, you could always stamp it on there if you really wanted to. You know, once, this is absolutely true in Medan, when I was in Medan years ago, they said they wanted a thousand books signed for VIPs in one hour. Oh, I did manage to do it, signing 1,000 books. But unfortunately, the Guinness Book of Records didn't validate it. I'm sure that should have managed to get in that. that. But anyway, the reason I did that, I was quite well known in Medan. You should actually bring this up you know, when you do the, um, the introduction. Because when I was there in Medan, at the same time in Jakarta, there was a famous person trying to give a talk there, and my st we had to get tickets. They were for no for free just to register, and then we had about three or four thousand people, I think, up in Medan, you know, to come to my talk. And those registrations they sold out, I think, in twenty minutes. My competitor in Jakarta was Lady Gaga. She sold out in 40 minutes. It was true. <laughs> so they kept on saying, Ajahn Brahm is more famous than Lady Gaga. <laughs> I don't know if I should really repeat that because I don't know if the competition is really worth comparing me to. Nevertheless. But anyway, when, 
you put in some, some happiness and joy in whatever you're doing. And I try and do that the very best I can. That does make it much more fun and also more meaningful. A good example which just came, come up is, you know how old I am now? S 70. I should have retired a long time ago. But instead of retiring, I can't retire because neither the Buddhist Society of Victoria nor the Buddhist Society of Western Australia uh, give me superannuation. So I just <laughs> keep on working. But nevertheless, I enjoy what I'm doing. But I did think that one day at least, at least I should go and get a Commonwealth uh, Seniors Healthcare Card. Because you can do that. You have to I'm only 65, I think, and I'm 70 now. So I decided to go and get a Commonwealth Healthcare Card. So I got online, typed in all my details, and said, yeah, you deserve one. But they said, there's something these days called identity fraud. They said, you've got to come and prove who you are. I don't want, don't know why anybody would try and steal my identity. You work really hard, you don't get paid. <laughs> Except in happiness. So anyway, they said you have to go to the, I think, Centrelink. Does anyone here work for Centrelink? Come on, confess. <laughs> so I made an appointment at Centrelink, and then they asked me, said, okay, Ajahn Brahm, our problem is you have to prove who you are. Can you prove who you are? And I said, I've been a monk for over 47 years. I've been trying to find out who I am and all that time, and I still haven't found out the answer. You know, as said to they haven't got a sense of humor. <laughs> they said, this is serious. <laughs> Show us something to, to prove you are who you are. Let's see your driver's license. I haven't got a driver's license. Oh, okay. Show us your, your bank account. I don't have a bank account. Show us your credit card. Don't have one of those. Show us your, your um, credit agreement. I don't have one of those. Show us your um, rental agreement, your house ownership. Show us something. You know what they ask for next? Your marriage certificate. <laughs> they actually did. <laughs> Real life is more funny than what you make. I was like, I'm a monk. I haven't been married for 47 years. I said, what? Haven't you got anything to prove who you are? I said, no. And she said to me, said, you don't exist. <laughs> and I said, yes, the Buddha was right. <laughs> And after that, she got so upset at me. Whatever it is, you signed it anyway. Okay. <laughs> we'll give you your okay, card. <laughs> that reminds me even that when we used to go traveling, you know, all these, these uh, stuff you can't put in your carry-on baggage? You remember those days? So I remember the last time when I flew overseas, they asked me if you got any liquids, any hair gel. I said, hey, hang on. <laughs> I'm a mug. I don't have hair gel. <laughs> 
But anyway, that is actually when you laugh with people, that's being kind to them. You know, sometimes that people do difficult jobs. When they do difficult jobs, they're working in Centrelink or they're working in the airport or they're working, you know, wherever. It's difficult because some people just don't fit in. And that's me. <laughs> but when there's any difficulty, that sometimes a little smile or laugh changes the whole interaction. So instead of getting angry, getting upset, what does that ever do when you get angry? or upset. It just gets you into more trouble, waste more time, and you never get any solutions in life. I just over here, just coming in here. I was late coming in, 10 minutes late, signing books. But even though there was more books to sign, did I get upset at you? Did I stop you? I said, that's not how to do it. You tell other people to stop you. <laughs> <laughs> Get other people to do the dirty work. <laughs> but anyhow, um, the kindness there, you can get much more interactions successfully with kindness. And the kindfulness is adding awareness, mindfulness, to the kindness. That was something which came up a long time ago in Buddhism, especially meditation, just maybe in life even, if we don't put those two words together, mindfulness and kindness, if we just have mindfulness, it gets very dull. And after a while, it doesn't work. Just be aware. I'm aware there's a traffic jam. I'm aware I'm going to be late. I'm aware it shouldn't be like this. I'm aware. And then you get crazy. It's not your fault. It's a traffic jam. You know whose fault it is? Traffic lights. <laughs> it's, it's nobody's fault. It's just what happens in our world. But if we get angry and upset, we've got no kindfulness to realize it's the anger is the problem. Not being in the jam. I like being in a traffic jam, honestly. I remember years ago, I was in a traffic, no, actually worse than a traffic jam. That was when there was uh, some problems at the airport. I was supposed to be flying to Indonesia to give some talks. And you went to check in and they said, I'm sorry, the flight's been cancelled. Cancelled? I've got a big talk coming there this evening. And they said, well, it's been cancelled. Okay. Yay! I can have a day off. Woo-hoo! <laughs> you always see the positive side in it. And anyway, I found out afterwards why the flight was cancelled. you know why the flight was cancelled? Bird flu. The flight was on Garuda. Garuda's a bird. It got flu. <laughs> Couldn't fly that day. <laughs> That's good airlines, remember that? It's a bird, so it couldn't fly. <laughs> so anyway, you always manage to find something useful. And that's kindfulness. And a good way, a good example of that is in business. 
sometimes people say, you've got to tie your talks to real life. You know sometimes in business, you've got people working for you who are not really working properly. They're not really contributing. They're not just, there's something wrong. What are you going to do about them? Are you going to shout at them? Sack them? And sometimes people are so afraid to sack people because that's their livelihood. And if you sack somebody, what work are they going to get? So that's not a good solution. Nor is it a good solution to let them carry on working. You're still paying them and they're not really contributing, earning their wage. So what should you do? That's one of the reasons why if somebody is working for you, but you know, that something's up, they're not really um, contributing their you know, full share of the workload, then there's something we call the sandwich method, which is how we learn how to keep kindness and mindfulness and progress in life. The sandwich method works like this. If there's somebody in your Buddhist society committee, <laughs> in your monastery, in, in your business, in your little cafe, it doesn't matter who it is, where it is, and they're not performing, first of all, you should praise them. Tell them how wonderful they are, how great it is to have them in our Buddhist society of Victoria. How wonderful it is to have them uh, in the Morven Town Hall Committee, whoever runs this place. Say how great it is that they are here. You praise them. Because when you start praising people, their ears get wider and wider and wider. They stop blocking things. What's it like when somebody, like a boss, tells you off and starts criticizing you. You just block it off. Why can they say these things to me? They don't do anything. They just go and play golf on Friday afternoons. They never do all the work. I've been working my butt off for this. Is it working? That's the trouble with, uh, well, I'm not going to say about the IT. The IT people are very wonderful. They're very great and beautiful people. But... <laughs> <laughs> and that's where you put the, the, the filling in the sandwich. You praise them first of all, and then they're listening. You actually turned around and was actually listening to me properly. <laughs> and then you actually tell them the problem. You say, but, 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 you, know, you have to, this is a problem for us. We can't continue on like this. And then lastly, you say, but, if it wasn't for you, I don't know where we would be in this in this Buddhist society of Victoria. We really value you. You're a great person. Thank you so much. Now that is simple psychology. Simple psychology. Because how many times you've been told off by your boss? And then you after a while you just close off. Just your ears shut down, your mind shuts down, you're not listening anymore. What you're saying is, how can he say this to me? And I've worked really hard for this company. I've really tried my best. It means you're not communicating. There's no awareness there. So you learn how to praise. It opens up people's minds. And then once it's open enough, that is when you 
put the message in. But you always finish off with something kind. So people realize, yeah, there's a problem there which you want to fix, but it's also that you're valued. How many of you sometimes work really hard? You are really kind and generous and work hard for others. It's not just for the pay packet. It's actually for something good in our world. But nevertheless, you're not appreciated. That's terrible. That means that after a while you just give up, you get depressed and you leave and I don't know what happens to you next. But it does mean it's never a good way to run any sort of project. But when a person is praised, they feel part of it. And the sandwich filling in the middle, that is where you teach people what they need to actually get better in life. So little by little, that sandwich method is a good example of kindfulness. And more than that, sometimes that whenever we do receive kindness, or no fair kindness, it makes us actually work a bit harder. I still remember this little article years and years ago about an engineering company. They wanted to actually to experiment a better way to run their company. And they had a very simple strategy which actually changed the way they did business. They doubled their profit, tripled their outcome, their, what was it, their uh, business in one year. To double your profit in one year is a pretty good outcome. And the method they used was really simple. And that method was banning overtime. This company said no overtime is allowed. When you leave the work, you go home, you can't take any work back with you. Spend the weekends, the holidays with your family or with yourself. It's important for you. And because of that, the people working in that company, they started to become healthier. They started to spend time with their family. Maybe their, their children needed their parents you know, for that weekend. I don't know, when I was in Singapore once a few years ago, there was this tragedy. A young boy committed suicide, jumped off one of the balconies of one of the high-rise flats. And what was really tragic was his suicide note, which said, I just wanted to spend more time with my mum and dad. Ooh. I think you can understand that. And, why don't we make that more important? Spending time with one another. So this company allowed that to happen. You spend time with your family, especially on the weekends, don't take work back. Which meant they had more time to relax, rest. They were being kindful to their own body kindful to their family and kindful to their, their lives which meant that they were healthier 
They wanted to work harder for the company while they were at the work. How many times have you worked somewhere and you haven't really given it 400% effort? Look at me. I think many of you have known me for a long time. I do give a lot of effort to whatever I have to do. I don't need to be in Buddhist society of Victoria. I'm only looking after the Buddhist society of Western Australia and the Australian Sacred Association and the latest spiritual director of Buddhist society, Cambodian society over in Perth and the Buddhist fellowship in Singapore and the Brahm Centre in Colombo and the, uh, the Brahm, uh, what's it called, another meditation uh, centre in Singapore and the spiritual advisor of the Buddhist Gem Fellowship in, um, in Malaysia, and there's a few others I think I missed out. Oh yeah, and the, the Bhikkhuni Monastery in England, where I'm this, actually I'm the Chair of the Trustees. Ooh. I don't have to do any more. Can I retire? <laughs> She's shaking her head. This is the president of the Buddhist Society of Victoria in the front, that's why she's in the front seat. <laughs> Actually, joining up to being the president of a Buddhist Society of Victoria or something, or joining the committee is really, really good, a good thing to do. Not only you get lots of merit, you also get the front seats, <laughs> you, also, you also get free parking, VIP parking if you come here. It's a really good idea. Anyway, um, and you also you know, get to sit and talk with Ajahn Brahm and any other VIP who comes. You know, some years ago we were doing a, a big conference in Perth. And so I thought, hmm, why don't we invite somebody really famous to get more people to come onto the seats? And so I did the committee, I said, let's invite to Australia Richard Gere. You know Richard Gere is a Buddhist, yeah? And so I said, let's invite Richard Gere. They said, but we can't afford it. I said, simple. If he comes for two or three days, I don't know how many thousands of dollars it will cost, but we'll auction off who will drive him from his hotel to our Buddhist society for the talks and who will drive him back again to the highest bidder. <laughs> I said, wow. That means that we'll easily pay off. <laughs> Would you like to have Richard Gere in your car? <laughs> One or two people said yes. So I said that was my plan, of course. Uh, couldn't even get close to him to invite him, but it was a good idea. But anyway, anyway, this particular society, not society, this company, they doubled their profits in one year. One of the reasons was that people didn't want to leave. They didn't want to leave the company when the company treated them so well. I don't know where you work. If you work in a company which you do feel that you're valued, that the bosses are kind to you, they practice kindness to you, would you like to carry on working for them? A lot of times, over here in Buddhist Society of Victoria, we don't have that many monks and nuns. I've got heaps of them over in Perth. I think 
the last time I left was about 25, I think. 25 mugs. I sent quite a few of them over here already. Why? And honestly, one of the reasons is because I make sure that the kindness is an important part of me managing that place. People are in problem, problems, troubles, they want to go visit their family, you know, some of their, their parents getting old, need to be in old people's homes, or whatever. The kindfulness is such a valuable way of dealing with life. And people come to the monasteries, the temple, our Buddhist centers, and they feel that someone is being kind to them and valuing them and looking at them and not judging them. Do you have problems in this life? Are you perfect? Of course not. We all have problems and difficulties. And so when you get someone who can listen to you and hear you, maybe you don't have solutions, but at least you have a friend, someone who cares for you. Very recently in Perth, just before I left, there was a tragedy. Suicide. Father killed the two children. He suicided himself. How do you feel? As soon as you say that, sometimes people, oh, this is really awful stuff. Some of you know the gentleman. But, kindfulness can deal with a problem like that in a very beautiful way. Number one, you should be aware enough that sometimes even in your life, you know, things don't go according to plan and sometimes you get into a very low state of mind and sometimes you get so many burdens and problems in your life. Sometimes the people are always telling you what to do instead of giving you kindness. Don't give answers to people. Give kindness to them. And then their kindness, that's where you can build a person up. That's where you can give them some energy so they can see solutions for themselves. You know, sometimes that's the only way. Because if everyone is telling them what to do, you feel even more disabled, hopeless, stigmatized. It's one of the little stories I was telling on the City Zen thing yesterday. And that was they're just giving talks to groups of uh, disabled, it was mentally disabled people. I paused there because I don't like ever saying the word disabled. Sometimes, have you noticed that in your life? If it's somebody close to you, somebody like a family friend or even just you know, brother or sister, you say disabled. You look a bit further, deeper into them, and they've got some abilities, different abilities, different ways of doing things, different ways of looking at life, which are sometimes even more superior. And I don't like the word disabled anymore. Different, yeah. But why do we keep judging people? You are disabled, you are not. One of the places that came from was when, as a young man, 
sorry, not a young man, as a young monk when I first came to Australia. And I had much more time. Well, one of the things I used to do was go to visit prisons. You know, prisons were great. You had a captive audience. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> it's okay to laugh at my stupid jokes. And one of the monks said that this happened to them recently, but this happened to me about 38 years ago, 37 years ago, when I went to one of these jails. I know that in those times the prisons had about 110 prisoners you know, in the whole prison, small prison in Bunbury, in uh, the south of uh, Western Australia. And about 105 prisoners came to my class. They were packed in the room. And I thought, wow, I never realized that people who were in prison were so spiritual until, in the middle of the talk, one of the prisoners stood up and said, can I ask a question? Now these prisoners were huge. They were like Goliaths, scars all over them, really big shoulders. When anybody that big stands up to you, you always say, yes sir, what question do you want to ask? <laughs> he could have wasted me so easily. And he was the one who asked, is it true that through meditation, which is what I was teaching there, through meditation you can learn how to fly over walls? <laughs> and this is not, I didn't make this up, this was true. I burst out laughing and when I told him, look, it is possible, but it takes a lot of training, maybe seven, eight, twenty years, you've got to have some basic skills as well. And the next week when I went in there again, only three people turned up. <laughs> Honest. <laughs> but nevertheless, those prisoners would always come to my talks. And then, some years ago, I got a phone call from one of the prison officers. And the prison officer, he tried to talk with other monks and said, no, I want Ajahn Brahm. I said, yes, okay, what can I do for you? He said, please come back to my prison to teach. I said, why? And he said, because that he'd been in the prison service all his life and he was about to retire. And he, you know, when he could retire, he wanted to leave some sort of legacy, do something really good. And he told me, and I'm just being honest with you, he said, I want you to come back to our prison because every prisoner who went to your class, no matter what crime they did, once released, never comes back. So I've seen this, this is weird. Never seen this before. Why? Can you touch them deeply inside so they could never need to come back to jail again? When I heard that, I thought, wow, that's a compliment. And I wondered why. One of the reasons why is through kindness, you're aware, but you see something more than faults in people. You have this kindness, this goodness, 
When you have that goodness, you can see it as beautiful things in the most unexpected places. The person can't. I can. That's one of the reasons why so often when you can counsel one of the people in the jail, don't know what they did, but a simple experiment, piece of paper, line down the middle, your name on the top, or your nickname will do, all the bad things about you. Can each one of you know all the bad things about yourself? The terrible things you've done in your life, the things you wish you'd never done. You may not even tell other people, but you know yourself what you did. Do you want to know one of the terrible things I did? Okay, here it comes. One of the terrible things Ajahn Pam did when he was a young boy. My mother's birthday. I think I told a few of you, you know this. It was my mother's birthday. And I was about seven or eight years of age. I can't remember, six, seven, eight, somewhere around that age. And I decided to get her a special present, secret. I went to a shop in London at that time. They had this new uh, food fad. It was jellied eels and mashed potato. So I went to the shop. I'd saved up my pocket money and I bought an eel, a live eel. <laughs> I'd already had the box prepared and some beautiful birthday paper, you know, with flowers on and hearts and stuff. And I, I put the eel in the box. I put the, the paper on top of it. And I folded it up as neatly as a seven or eight year old boy could do this. Now any boys here, don't do this at home to your mum. And I got some little ribbon and tied it into a nice bow and a little card, a lovely birthday card. And I sort of tied it in those small cards they put on presents. And I signed it to mummy with love from your son. Happy birthday. Ah. <laughs> on the outside it looks so sweet, but on the inside, especially I gave it to my mother. Here mummy, happy birthday. Ah, oh, it was so sweet to get that from a little kid. And she opened it. The most important thing, even at that age I was smart enough to have what these days they call exit strategy. <laughs> I knew exactly where I was going to run. Because it, it worked so perfectly, you know, for a six or seven, eight year old kid. When she opened the box, she was so excited, it's so sweet. Oh, your little kid has got your last birthday kid all by himself. Oh, so lovely. And then as soon as she opened the box, the eel, it just came up all by itself and just looked at my mum. <laughs> she screamed! I didn't know what happened next because I was running. <laughs> I figured out the place I was going to hide. <laughs> and then afterwards I went up to mum, sorry mum, I said, oh, okay. It's wonderful that you know, she was kind enough 
So actually, <laughs> I, I let her calm down first. Well, at least I knew that one. You don't say sorry straight away. You wait. <laughs> oh, what I did as a young man. But you know, I don't mind telling people that. That's a stupid thing to do. But nevertheless, it shows that, you know, sometimes I have, you know, uh, misbehaved before. But the kindness which I got from my mum, the kindness which she told, showed me was that if anybody else in that position, just because I did a stupid thing, doesn't mean I'm a stupid kid. And that's just like the people I went to see in prisons. I gave them kindness. I was aware they'd done some terrible things. When I saw them, I'd realised they'd done many other things as well. So I remember this one prisoner, he said, oh, he's terrible through and through. He's got no good qualities at all, he said. And I gave him that piece of paper, name at the top, the left-hand side of the line, in the middle of the paper, all the bad things you've done. He filled out that side very quickly. On the right-hand side of that line, all the good things you've done. He said, I haven't done any good things. Yes, you have. He said, no, you don't know me, Ajahn Brahm, I'm a terrible person. He said, the other prisoners told me that you'd take care of the, of the prison cat. Well, yeah, but that's just that's nothing. Put down on the top, gave the cat a saucer of milk. That's a nice, kind thing to do. So that's what he did, he wrote down, gave cat a saucer of milk. What else did you do for that poor cat? Oh, I saved it some fish from the, from the, from my lunch. Put that down. Put something else down. Put something else down. You know, once it was almost like the damn wall had broken. He came out with all these other kind things which he'd done, even just that day. And when he filled out the right side of the paper, I showed it to him. Look, before you thought you hadn't done any good things at all. But you have, why is it we block out the kind good things in our life? And we just look at the bad things in our life. Kindfulness, you're mindful, kind, of the beautiful qualities inside of yourself. That's what I did with the prisoners. They realized they weren't as bad as they thought. And one of the examples of that, there was a prisoner in our local jail, in there, for, I don't know how many years, for murder. It was a pretty serious crime, it caused a lot of pain for so many people in that family. You know, after he heard you know, me speak, and got a copy of that book, Open the Door of Your Heart. For those of you who know the story, the first story in Open the Door of Your Heart, the two bad bricks in the wall, he got it. He said, it was only two murders. <laughs> only two murders. <laughs> and he's going around the prison saying, only two murders. So many other people he didn't murder. Now, that was an extreme case. But seeing it like that changed his life. He couldn't undo those murders. But what you could do, you get a person who could, once he was free of that jail, He'd come out, he could have a life, and be good, and be kind, and do a lot of really wonderful things in his life. What would you rather have? 
a person who believes they're a murderer, or a person who understands and learns. Why he did that, I'm not sure. He never needs to do it again. He doesn't need to go back. That's how we do the kindfulness. Little by little, you can do that to yourself. How many bad things have you done in your life? I already said one. Now, it was only one eel I gave my mum. <laughs> and I never did it again. I love my mum very much. <laughs> little by little, you learn what kindfulness is. You're not just aware of yourself, your behaviour, your life, your friends, what you've done, what you haven't done. You learn from those and you grow from them. You become better people. So just like, this is for those Buddhists here, when you're free of the jail, you never need to go back again. When you're finished with this life, you learn enough, you never need to get reborn in this human realm. You've finished. You've learned. Little things like that start to show you how many of the things which I say, I think are just jokes, or just like some people said, just pop Buddhism. Very fun to listen to, but not deep. They're incredibly deep. Open the door of your heart, is how I meditate. Open the door of my heart to whatever's happening right now. Be peaceful with it. You don't control it. I just want to finish off with a classic story, but it, it fits so well. Because I've been a monk for such a long time, you get to know people for a long time. I've known some of you for such a long time. And remember some of the people who go to the classes over in Perth, that's where I spent most of my life. Known them since they were kids. Now they've grown up. Now they've sort of got their own kids. And got their own kids got kids themselves now, got grandkids. It makes me really feel old. But nevertheless, I don't mind feeling old. I just, I can't get any, actually I did get the, uh, the Commonwealth Health card in the end. <laughs> but nevertheless, that he came to, this kid came to me, it, his parents, his parents were wonderful, um, he was a psych psychiatrist, she was a doctor, they were Sri Lankan, both of them, their son, uh, grew up in Perth, very smart kid, became a doctor. Know how much work it is to get a, a medical degree? And his first year as a doctor, he came to see me before he went to see his parents. So he can't do the job any longer. He has to resign and find another career. And straight away my first feeling was that why waste all that hard work you've done? You know, you've you know, passed all your exams, done your degrees, you've got your PhD as a doctor, can't you actually just carry on? He said, no. He said his crisis in his life as a doctor was that he was an intern at a hospital and that one of his patients had passed away tragically. It was a young woman, about 23 years of age. 
She wasn't expected to die. He got the sort of the page, the court, went to see her. It was on a Saturday morning. Maybe the consultants weren't available. But he tried his best, but she passed away. She died. And he had to go to see her husband, maybe 24, 25. Two young people, beginning of their life together, really loving each other very deeply. He had to tell the husband that his wife was no longer. She died. She couldn't hold his, her hand anymore, couldn't embrace her, couldn't kiss her. Her wife, and what really put the, the wound to an unbearable level. Their two children were there, two young kids. So you've got no mummy anymore. She's gone. She says, I can never ever do that again. I have to resign. And that's when I told him, you've misunderstood the purpose of being a doctor. Any nurses here, what's the purpose of being a nurse? Psychologist, a psychiatrist, even a monk. What's the purpose of this? It's not to cure people. If you try and cure people, you'll always fail. You just basically delaying the day of death for a few years. But you can't always cure people. But you can always care for them. So you missed the point. Your job as a doctor is to care. Care for the person you're treating. Care for their husband. Care for their kids. Care for their parents. You never need to be a failure when you care, you can always succeed in caring, but not in curing. Good on him, he got that. He went back to work. And he realised, you can always care for everybody he treats. Imagine what it's like, you go to a hospital and you realise that someone is really caring for you. It may not go right, the operation may go wrong and all sorts of things happen, but you've been cared for. You know your family members have been cared for. That changes the whole ballgame. And he's still a doctor. Not only that, you ask, and many of you know, one of the monks over in NBM, Venable Mudito, Ajahn Mudito over there, ask him, he had his terrible gut condition. He found out he was passing blood. That's really dangerous. So he said, you've got to get a sort of a doctor to test out you know, what's going on. It could be cancer, colon cancer. And so he, he went in to see the local doctor and he said, well, you know, you haven't got private health insurance, so you know, we can actually get you an appointment, but you know, at the moment, maybe about four, five, six months before you can get sort of a proper appointment with a, with a consultant. When he came back and told me that, four, five, six months, you could be dead by then. But then we thought, hey, one moment. Because this particular doctor was about to resign. And I said, you got it all wrong, it's not about curing, it's about caring. That was his job. He was an expert in Western Australia on colonoscopies. Please excuse me, but I may have got that wrong exactly 
the right name for such an expert. I just call him Bum Doctor. <laughs> you understand that straight away. And so we called him up. So how I jump on? One of your monks? Yeah. Send him in. Within the next opportunity, four or five days. And also, all for free. And I thought, isn't it wonderful? That's what caring does. You care for people, care for one another, that's much better than cure. That's not just in medicine either. The kindfulness. I don't know how many of you got a partner. You've been trying to cure them for years. <laughs> Forget it. Don't try and cure them. Care for them. Caring is much easier and it works. And just like I was not trying to cure the prisoners in the jail, but caring for them, pointing out their goodness. That's why when those prisoners left jail, they never came back again into jail. That's how you solve problems with kindfulness. Thank you for listening. I have now gone five minutes over. I hope you'll forgive me because you practice kindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> Just my kind of. Okay. Okay, thank you so much for the inspiring talk again. Um, so now is Q&A questions. Uh, session, sorry. Um, if anyone wants to ask questions, please come to the microphone over there. Oh, we've got one coming up straight away. Yes. Perfect. Excellent. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for your talk, Ajahn Brahm. Um, really inspiring. So thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, um, next question. This is my first time at a BSB event, and um, I, I'm really intrigued by this kindfulness principle that you're talking about. And as you're talking, it, it, it's resonating with a couple of themes that are going on right now for me, uh, particularly related to my work. And I find that the work's a place that I spend a lot of time. And we've been in lockdown for a while here in Melbourne. Now we're coming out, the world's opening up. I'm spending a lot more time at the workplace these days. And something that's becoming apparent to me as I practice more is that some of the leaders of the place that I work are becoming a bit more aware that perhaps some of their beliefs and behaviours are a little bit narrow and a bit conservative. Um, and they seem to be of the opinion that there's no place for compassion in this world. And that aggression is superior. I was pretty taken aback when I heard this recently. And I was just curious to hear your thoughts on interacting kindfully and with intention of kindfulness with people that are, people that are of that opinion that aggression is superior to everything else. Thanks. Okay. Remember to tell you this story last night. There's one of the followers over in Sydney Julie, her name was, she'd just given birth to her first uh, kid, Holly. 
and uh, she was in the fashion business and she was trying to negotiate a very big contract which would actually open up her business with a company in London. And so she got the call from this company the last moment, come to London, we're ready to sign your contract. So she talked it over with her husband and said, you can't miss the opportunity. She got a ticket and put her, her little baby in the hands of her husband. And she thought, any of you who've had a baby, you notice how it's really, really hurts to leave them. But you know, she just did it. When she landed, when she got to Heathrow, she got to a hotel quickly, just showered and went straight to the boardroom of this company to try and get that contract signed. What happened next was she got into the boardroom. The directors were there, but not the boss. And so the director said, you wasted your time. Go back to your hotel, go back to Sydney. There's no way in the world the boss is gonna sign this contract today. He's in a really bad mood. She said, no, I'm going to stay here. Suit yourself. So she sat down in a corner, crossed her legs, and did a bit of meta meditation, which is kindfulness meditation. And about five minutes later, the boss came in. Who is that? In my boardroom, what did she think she was doing? But much worse than that, because I've had no practice getting fierce or getting angry. But you can imagine what it's like. And then she, you know, the boss was scowling at her. And then Julie just got up. She just done 10 minutes of meditation and just came up and just looked the boss in the eye. The boss was about to eat her. And she said to this boss, you have such beautiful blue eyes like my baby Holly back in Sydney. When you shout at people, and you've got a lot of power, like a big boss, a CEO of a big company, you would think that the person would never actually praise you for your beautiful blue eyes. But Julie did that, and she said that the, the boss, his face, just first of all was so confused, he'd never seen this before. And then afterwards, it softened, and then he smiled and said, I've got beautiful blue eyes. <laughs> and he signed the contract. <laughs> and she was so relieved and she tried to go, go home to take a rest. He just arrived on a long flight. But the directors would met her. The boss left the room. The directors encircled her. This is what she told me. And they wouldn't let her leave until she explained how the heck did she do that. I'd never seen that before. This is how it works. They may not give kindness to you, but you can give kindness to them. And they see its power. Little by little. And it's not she didn't just get a big boost for a company. She taught other people different ways to do business. Can't we actually work together? We can do so much more when we work together rather than working against one another. I don't know. Any people from Germany here? But anyway, this one guy came over from the time before the, the wall came down, when it was West Germany and East Germany. And he said that when he first came to Australia, he got married over here. And he said that 
People said, oh, West Germany, one of the best economies in the world because German people work so hard. I said, no, we don't work hard. We work much harder here in Australia. But he said, in, in Germany, we've all learned how to work in the same direction. In Australia, we all work like this, against each other. There's no way to run an economy, to run a business. Imagine running a footy team. Imagine all the people who, who played for a football team all tackled each other instead of the other team. <laughs> who would you get? That's what happens in business, in a company, in an office. I'm a monk. I know that. We decide to work together. Much more powerful. Okay. Thank you for allowing me to talk too long. Another question? Okay. Who gets the fine first of all? Who's going to come on? Get together. Who is it? Come on, my money is No, no, the guy. Very good. Yeah, go on. Thank you, Archibara, for coming in Melbourne to teach us. And uh, I'm from Chiswick. My name is Lok from Chiswick Center. Very good. And I'm a social worker. Very good. So I often listen to your teaching through the YouTube because it's very useful. Because I find it's very hard to support, you know, clients and not bring their misery to home. So yeah, humanly, it's hard to say that, oh, it doesn't affect me. It does. And so, recently the war in Russia, Russia attacked uh, Ukrainian people, that bring all the lots of trauma that Tibetan people experienced and the Chinese occupation. And I kind of feel like nobody helped Tibet, that's why we lost our country, so nobody helping Ukraine. So kind of history is repeating and make me very upset and also angry and sometimes watch the news until 12.30 and I can't sleep. So I thought, oh, Agibar is coming here me <laughs> to go and to listen, you know, how to deal with this anger and, you know, upset. Yeah. First of all, is I always think that you lost your country. You haven't lost the country. There's always good things which happen when these politicians mess around. Now, if maybe uh, that hadn't happened in Tibet, we wouldn't have had the Dalai Lama, his holding the Dalai Lama coming over to the West. We wouldn't have you coming over to Melbourne. There's so many positive things about, you know, whatever happens in this world. And I love to hear those positive things when there's so-called tragedies. And a simple example of that is that when I was, I think, 20, yeah, about 20, I had a beautiful girlfriend, and you now we were in love, but she dumped me. At the time, I wasn't very happy about that, but now, oh, I thank her so much. If she hadn't dumped me for another guy, I would have never become a monk. <laughs> Now that's a simple story, but there is always something good which happens with every tragedy in life. Who owns a country? It's not a sort of a culture owns a country. It's people do. 
And the more people we can sort of embrace in this country, the more people we can embrace in every country. Be wonderful Ukrainian people. No, there will be refugees. It's a tragedy, it hurts. But many of them will find a life in other places. And who knows, there's many of the right now, people over in Ukraine and in Russia. I don't know why people do these things. But it doesn't really help if we hate each other. Instead, we have this beautiful thing in Melbourne called the AFL. I don't mean football, I mean acknowledge, forgive, learn or let go. We grow from these tragedies in life. We know that even in the Vietnam Wars, there's many people from Vietnam here. If we didn't have the Vietnam Wars, there would be so many wonderful Buddhists here in Australia. Many wonderful Cambodian people. There's always beautiful parts. Unfortunately, over in Western Australia we have bushfires. But because my monastery where I live is on a hillside overlooking the ocean, the ocean's about 30 kilometers away, but it's still got a good view. Whenever there is a bushfire, the sunsets are amazing in the ocean, over the ocean. You do need the smoke from the fires to actually spread the golds and the crimsons of the sunset over the horizon. Never notice there's always beauty in tragedy. Unfortunately, the news only shows the tragedies, never the hero heroics. That comes later. The beautiful thing is when a Russian saves a Ukrainian. He says, enough with war. That happens. It's beautiful when you see that. Okay, see the positive side of things. Okay. Okay. Uh, actually, I've been listening to your talk and practicing for a while. This is about kindness. I find out, like, when you extremely kind to someone, and when you extremely face with someone, especially in the workplace, they're sort of scared of it. I'm not sure if scared is the right word, but they feel uncomfortable. It's a bit hard to interact with them, and it takes time. I'm not sure what I'm missing here. That's the yeah. It is, it's the same as when a prisoner is released from jail. They're afraid of freedom. So a lot of time it's still worth doing. It doesn't matter how long it takes, it's worth it to create a beautiful world. We keep on trying to do the better rather than just say, no, it takes too long. So just keep on giving that kindness there. Uh, it's worthwhile. Very good. Venerable Peter Brown, thank you very much for all your teaching. Um, as a lay person, we always tend to take more than give. 
and we will try to be balanced and follow the legal path. So we want to get more, try to get more. But when I think of you, the great agent from always give, 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 and I believe that you somehow either find a loophole or something because you will not violate the legal path. I can't figure out how yet. I, I hope that my logic is correct. Somehow you should give and you should take somewhere. So can you please enlighten me? Yes. Thank you. Well, I, I do a lot of giving, but look how much I take here. <laughs> and this is, where is this? This is my middle. This is the middle way. <laughs> now, a lot of times, I, of course, we grow and grow and grow. We become kinder and kinder and kinder. We learn how that serving, giving to others, you get a huge boost of energy. Every time, last Saturday, we had a big, uh, I don't know what you call it, but a big ceremony down in Newbury, and people really enjoyed themselves. They didn't get anything out of it. They drove such a long way and they gave so much, and they helped clean up, giving, 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 giving. And of course, I was there too, giving. I found out in my life as a monk, I can't give money, but I can give my, look, this is, Sri Lankan temple over in Singapore. I hope they still kept this. When I went to visit their temple many years ago, and after showing me around, they gave me, said, sign the visitor's book. You're a well-known man, please sign the visitor's book. So I picked up the book, and I put my name, the address, and, I, and then the next uh, thing to sign is how much. I got the wrong book. <laughs> it was a donation book. And I couldn't sort of scratch out my name or just, it was too far gone for that, so oh, what should I do? So then I put down, I actually wrote this, this inspiration came, and I wrote down how much I'm going to give to the Sri Lankan temple in Singapore. And I wrote down the two words, my life. And I love that. That's what I've done. You give your life to the BSV, to NBN, BSWA, BS this and BS that. <laughs> Give me more. And do I look overworked? I joke about being overworked. You get so much inspiration and joy. That's one of the reasons I went to NBM. The first time I've seen you know, stage one of the project over there, really inspiring. And, you know, all I did there was just on my last birthday, 70th birthday, we raised some money for everything. We, we raised a lot of money there. And that really blew me away, not my money. I haven't got any. But just give, 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 give. Actually, how much did we actually raise on my birthday? Two, two point six what? Two point six dollars? <laughs> 2.6 million Australian dollars on that occasion. I've never had that money. I only worked for five, 
five shillings or a pound. I remember working my butt off when I was a, a young man for one pound. That's a one day. 2.6 million. That's incredible. Why? Giving, serving, whichever way you can. That gives you so much happiness and joy. It's not for me. I, I didn't receive a cent of that. In fact, that morning, you know, I decided I'm going to fast that day. Because I didn't have anything. I was supposed to have a, a cup of tea. I don't take sugar in my tea, I only take condensed milk. <laughs> and I didn't even have that that day. I fasted. But anyway, I enjoyed that so much. Was I tired? Weird, no. I was inspired with joy. You know, there's a class of heavenly beings they call beings who feed on joy. Piti Baka Deva. You know what that feels like? You're doing something really beautiful in our world. You just go and make a, a meditation retreat center. You go and sit in there and you get deep meditation. Or like this guy who was, he didn't come on the, my last retreat because he came on the December retreat over in Perth or November or something. And he only came just to say thank you. For what? And he said because the retreat before, he had had brain tumour. And his neurosurgeon said there's only one way of survival, you have to have surgery and be on steroids for the rest of his life. I think that's what I heard. And anyway, he said, no, I don't want to do that. So he did meditation instead. Now, I'm only saying this is not the only case, it's many cases, it's an example of many. And he said he came on meditation at this place, as a Janakov, and he said, the doctor, neurosurgeon said, it's all gone. He didn't do anything. The neurosurgeon said, what have you been doing? Meditating. Great. Carry on, full remission, with no surgery, no medication. Suddenly so one letter changed, the C to the T. Not medication, meditation. <laughs> <laughs> Same with care to the, not the cure, cure to the care. One letter, that's all it takes. Okay, next question, lady, the lady is up there first. Yeah, thank you for the lovely session. No, you, you can't go, there's a lady behind you, come on. Uh, I was here before. Well, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, go on. Uh, yeah, so uh, my question is basically around Obviously, yeah, I mean, mindfulness plus kindness adds to kindfulness. Uh, my question is around what key ingredients that will help you to achieve kindfulness when dealing with toxic people. I reckon everyone wants to be kind and kindful, but I guess when you deal with lots of toxic people, it could put in a lot of negative energy into your system. In turn, you sort of give in to those sort of thoughts, or how do you counter those, and, and what's the key ingredient in your opinion, how to counter it? I reckon if all of us can be kind to each other, the world is going to be a different place. That's what we are all after. So what's the sort of key ingredient in your opinion that could help us to achieve being kind to people, even if you face a toxic situation? 
First of all, again, a long time people have been using that word toxic people. I don't take that. Because imagine some of those people and they, they're called toxic. They're not toxic people. They may be toxic today. They may be just um, disturbed at the present moment, but they're not always toxic. Some of those people have some really, really difficult lives and you see them afterwards and they're brilliant people. So how to deal with people who behave in a toxic way right now? See beyond that toxicity. See their good qualities. Just like that toxic boss who was told by Julie, you've got beautiful blue eyes. She could do that because she had the stillness and the peace of just 10 or 15 minutes of meditation. Why could be with prisoners who were rapists against guys? And I was a guy. It was a dangerous situation, but I felt so safe in there. Simply because I'd given that kindness for such a long time. These were my friends. I felt protected. So often in this world, we can judge, and what we judge another person, that is what, how they behave to us. You look at a person and say, that's a toxic person. They become a toxic person. I look upon people and say, that's my friend. And they become friends. Even animals like snakes. Many times over, especially in Thailand, you know, you've had snakes crawling up here, trolling on snakes with bare feet. They would never bite. I would apologize if I hurt them, but I usually was mindful enough to to jump before they jumped. And you had compassion, they would never harm you. And the same with, with even tarantulas. Over in Thailand, the tarantulas would be up in the, the bare rafters of the huts. On the hot weather, they would fall on you, like bare chested, it was too hot to wear, you know, the upper rope. I'd have something down below, and they'd fall on you. Tarantulas, big ones, you know, over my chest. I love that. It was dickly. And they could never buy you because you were kind to them. So when your kindness increases, many toxic people put in jail. And I went to visit them. And they weren't toxic at all. And knew how to relate to them. If you kick a spider, the spider will bite you. But if you're kind to it, one of the monks, sorry for going over time, but this is a, a great story. He's still alive over time. Many of you know Matan Kanha. Too old to come over here now. But he, he was the one meditating in a, a jungle. And a king cobra came up to him. In that part of Thailand, the northeast, any people from the east sound here? Northeast of Thailand? They were called the one-step snake, that was their nickname. They are called one-step snake because if they bit you, that's all you had. One step, dead. Highly toxic. The snake came up to him. Put up its head. He was meditating, sitting in the jungle floor. Opened its hood. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to make the talks interesting. <laughs> 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 
people out. <laughs> so, what would you do? Well, this monk did. There was three or four other monks there meditating as well. They had their eyes open by this time. This monk put up his, his hand and patted the king cobra on the head, saying in Thai, thank you for visiting me. The tiger snake, not the tiger snake, the king cobra never picked him at all, but afterwards just went away. When Ajahn Ganha came to Bodhinyana Monastery in Serpentine, Western Australia, we hadn't built our main hall yet. The plans were in the local council for approval. So the mayor came to check us out, came to visit. The mayor was a local farmer. He was as probably fatter than I am. He was wearing a shirt, uh, a shirt and a suit. You could see the buttons in the, the jacket were almost coming apart. This was an official visit, the mayor. And before I could stop Ajahn Ganha, Ajahn Ganha saw him, went right up to him and started rubbing his belly. <laughs> I don't know about the mayor of Morven or whatever shire is it. What is it, Morven? The council? Stoddington. If the mayor of Stoddington, Toddington, if I went up to him and, and <laughs> <laughs> rubbed his belly, I'd probably get put in jail. BSV would be done for. Never again would they get any permission to use the hall. But the mayor, he just was started gurgling like a baby. He loved every minute of it. And he told me that afterwards, he became a really good friend. I used to go visit him down in his farm and he's always very kind to us. We got our approvals really easy after that. <laughs> Thanks for good old... <laughs> I got that. But that was the kindness, was irresistible. So a lot of times toxic people, if you can just get that kindness in there somewhere. Because they want to be loved, they want to be friends. Who doesn't want to have a friend? So anyway, that's what I say. Okay, next question. We are over time, but never mind. It's okay. The last one. Okay, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, uh, I've watched your talk of letting go, four ways of letting go. Oh yeah. Probably more than ten times. <laughs> Um, and uh, something I am struggling to let go of is um, the turmoil I have with my brother, trying to care for him when he doesn't care for himself, probably somewhat like a prisoner who's quite captivated um, in his own suffering, and it's very difficult to hold space for him. Um, Yes, I was just wondering if you could speak to um, working with kindness with someone so rooted in my own conditioning, my upbringing, um, that, yeah, working with triggers and habitual behaviours and things like that. Yeah, it's, I've noticed this many times when a monk's mother 
our brother, father has come to see them. And you cannot teach them. I could not teach my own mother about meditation or anything. Other monks could, but I couldn't. Because imagine, you grow up together, and a mother would be teaching ever since I was tiny. There's no way I could do that. And I also remember that was the same with Venerable Sariputta, who was the wisest monk next to the Buddha. And Sariputta was trying for his whole life to teach his mum. But she just wouldn't listen to him. Every time he went to visit, now he would, uh, his mum would say to him, haven't you got a proper job yet? <laughs> Going around, <laughs> just a bald-headed beggar? <laughs> or something like that. And he realised that you can't teach people so close to you. That has to be somebody else who does that teaching. So you can reinforce the teaching, but the main help for your brother, if in a difficult situation, has to be another therapist. And you will listen to them much better. And as for you, you're trying your very best. Remember, you're caring for him, not trying to cure him. And say, so, you know, you're my brother. Draw my heart open to you the rest of your life. You don't have to treat me well. I just love you anyway. It doesn't matter what happens, I'm still your sister. And that's just how I love you. That's it. Keep it simple. Okay. <laughs>